Welcome to the Paragold Podcast. This is Jared Pickney, and I am joined today by Anthony Allen. Anthony, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thank you for having me, Jared. So it's this time three and a half years ago, and if I remember correctly, you were a, a fitness machine. Um, I know you were doing a lot of different comp- uh, competitions, Tough Mudder, uh, CrossFit Open, you know, I know powerlift competition, Spartan Race, um, you're bench pressing, you know, 300 pounds, good deadlift, 475, squat 350. Um, I know you ran a half marathon, like your average pace. I'm trying to remember, like 658 a mile, which is insane. So let's just go back to those days. Man, life was was pretty good, right? Yeah. So um, like you were saying, um, three and a half years ago, I was in my final year of school to be a physical therapist. I was in my last clinical rotation um, you know, I didn't have a care in the world as far as, um, you know, some of the things that I would encounter later. Um, I really enjoyed fitness. For me, it wasn't just a hobby or about, you know, so much weight regulation. It was about function. You know, I was studying to be a physical therapist, and the more I understood, you know, human function in, in various forms, and, you know, in a chemical form and a, uh, and a structural form and things of that nature, the more it took root and to kind of took hold of me. Mm-hmm. And my goals changed from, you know, exercising for personal gain or um, for, you know, uh, vain, vain purposes to really maximizing my function and seeing, you know, what I could do to improve my quality of life and my health and fitness allowed me to enjoy life. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't bench press and how much I bench press or how fast I could run, but everything that allowed me to do that I enjoyed. You know, those other competitions that you named off, the powerlift competition, mm-hmm. CrossFit. Mountain biking, you know, I did all these things with my my friends, my peers, hmm. and so there wasn't only a physical aspect to it, but kind of that um, psychosocial aspect, and where you know that was how we socialized. Um, you know, I was looking toward graduating, uh, and then moving into working in orthopedics. Um, I was doing my last clinical rotation in an outpatient facility, actually here in Paragould, the St. Bernard's in Paragould. And, uh, and I knew exactly, you know, what I wanted, where I wanted to go. I was in a relationship, and we were kind of talking about our future and, you know, where we'd live, where we wanted to work. She was also in school to be a physical therapist. And so I really felt like I had been enduring a struggle for a period of my life, you know, where you're going through college and you're figuring out life. And I kind of felt like I was approaching that finish line, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And that finish line seemed marked by my graduation. Hmm. And, um, you know, I had no idea what would kind of unfold in the next few days, and it would just kind of change that direction. Yeah, so I want to talk about that. Um, life obviously changed for you forever in just an instance. Um, can you take us back? I know you probably don't remember a whole lot about the accident itself, but what do you remember about that evening? It's April what? It was April 18th, and it's it's interesting the way you word it. Um, when I had my accident, I had a motorcycle accident, and when I first woke up, my family and my friends were there, and I could remember the event, and I could tell them, you know, describe it to them, describe what happened and, mm. and how I ended up there. Well, they kept me under a chemical sedation for a few weeks, and the chemicals that they use, they can make you forget and so when I finally came out of my chemically induced coma, the last thing I can actually remember clearly was three days before the accident when I really? was at my powerlift competition. Wow. And so... Um, so it erased pretty much all memory up to three days prior? If I reread a conversation, like if I went back in my phone and looked at it, I yeah. could remember saying okay. those things. But for me to bring it back, like if you said, okay... What you know, Saturday was the powerlift competition. So, if you're like, okay, what happened on Sunday? What happened on Monday? I couldn't give you the specifics. If I read it again or someone talked about it, then it would come back to me. But for me to just present that picture for you, that was the last thing that I can actually remember on my own. So, what, what actually happened from what others have told you? So, <clears throat> from what I can put together, from what I was able to tell my family after the accident and what I was able to gather from the police report and then just kind of my own knowledge, you know, of myself and, mm-hmm. and how I react to situations. Mm-hmm. 
the best I can determine. I was actually at the gym that day. I'd gone to um, a gym there in Jonesboro, and I was headed back to the house. And I and the girl I was dating, we had drove separate that day. Um, I was training for a few competitions, and so I was going to lift weights, and then I was going to run. And she wouldn't have anything to do while I was running, so I was like, hey, let's go ahead and drive separately. That way, you're not waiting on me after we're finished. You can just go ahead and go home, and you don't have to wait for all that. And so she said, okay. And I kind of had a a check in my spirit, Hmm. like, we should go together. There was something that told me that, hey, you you shouldn't take your motorcycle. And initially... My fear was actually that, you know, somehow she was going to get injured and it would be better for us to go together. And uh, I kind of talked myself out of it. I said, okay, you know, she's a big girl. She's lived this many years without you. You need to just kind of put that in the back seat. Mm. Never even occurred to me, you know, that I may be potentially at risk. And so we went to the gym and, you know, we we finished lifting and she left and she went home and... um, then when I finished, you know, I was going back to her house to spend some time with her, and um, I was in the right lane, or I'm sorry, the left lane, and there was a car in front of me that was moving slowly, and so I accelerated as I moved to the right lane. Once I got over to the right lane, I realized there was a car further ahead that was coming to a stop. Hmm. So now I'm kind of pinned between this car that I was passing and the curb and the car in front of me that's stopping. And I evaluated the situation for a second, and a lot of this I'm getting from what I was able to tell my friends. Sure. Um, And the car that was coming to a stop didn't have a blinker on, and they were just kind of sitting there. So to me, it appeared they were slowing down, but I couldn't see the reason why. And so to avoid a rear-end collision, I decided to try to go to the shoulder and go around them. And so when I went to the shoulder... The car made a right-hand turn into the Sonic there at the far, about, about the Farville curve. And uh, my knee struck the frame of the vehicle. And then my left arm kind of went into the passenger glass there. And so my knee basically was destroyed on impact. Uh, you know, I went back and I read the police report, and he talks about, you know, the bone fragments that were found on the concrete and the, you know, the number of... Uh, tourniquets they had to put on it to stop the bleeding. Goodness. And then, um, so, you know, I'm there, I'm, I'm laying on the ground, and the Completely girl... Completely unconscious, I, would... I I wasn't unconscious. That I can gather from the police report, and then there was a, a girl, one of the car hops, who's seen the accident. She just saw, heard it afterwards, saw the aftermath with me on the ground. And um, she came over to me, and, you know, she could have seen the situation was bad. Well, she ran inside to get... Her manager, who was temp, uh, part-time emergency response. <laughs> and so wow. he runs out and he takes his belt off and puts his belt around my leg. Wow. And I didn't know it at the time, but I had completely demolished the femoral artery, which is the artery in your leg that supplies all the blood to your leg. And it's about the size of your pinky. And so usually if you destroy that artery, you've got about five minutes till you bleed out. You don't have a lot of time. A lot of time the meds won't make it there because you got five minutes. So had he not been there, you know, that could have been the end of the story right there. Well, he puts his belt on and, you know, eventually emergency response gets there. And the police report talks about, you know, they put the first tourniquet on and then they put the second tourniquet on and they finally got the bleeding to stop. And so, you know, they had to... At that point, they made a decision and they decided to fly me to Memphis to the med because they had to take me somewhere who could handle those kinds of injuries. And so I was airlifted to Memphis. Uh, I get to Memphis and, you know, they start to look at me a little more closely. And what you could see was the leg. What you couldn't see was that when I struck the vehicle, having been moving at a high rate of speed like that and then immediately coming to a stop, it tore the lining of my carotid artery in my neck. And so now I have a blood clot forming in my neck, a blockage for my circulation, and then I have blood trying to to bleed out through my leg. And so you have to stop the bleeding at the leg, but you need to thin the blood so you don't throw a clot. Wow. Well, you know, they they struggled with that for a while. They didn't want to amputate. Uh, Eventually, the blood clot breaks free, and it goes into my brain, and I have a series of strokes. This and, is all like within 24 hours? 
this was all uh, yes. So you know, hit airlifted, and then they do the work, and uh, then the they found out about the tear, and then the strokes take place. Um, by the time my family got to the hospital, they had already done the amputation. They said, you know, we couldn't get blood to the lower part of his leg. Uh, we, you know, we could see that he's healthy. We could see that he's fit. We really didn't want to do an amputation, but it was going to be his leg or his life. So we had to make the decision to amputate. And so when I woke up, which was a few weeks later, because they had me in that coma, initially I didn't know anything that had happened. You know, I knew I was hurt and I knew I was in a hospital, but I wasn't aware of everything that happened to me. I actually found out when I tried to stand up, I was successful at standing up, but obviously I didn't know I had the one leg and with the one leg I couldn't balance myself and I ended up falling. Man. And uh, after that was whenever my family was like, hey, we got to sit down and tell them, you know, what all's going on. And um, Were you in, uh, mentally, like, was your brain, you had the stroke, like, and obviously you're on drugs. I mean, are you able to even come close to common? What are you feeling? So you wake up, your leg is, is missing. Leg is gone. The left side of your body is not working as it used to, correct? Correct, yes. And and if I remember correctly, you're also like, was your, you, you had some facial damage too, like your jaw or something. Am I right about that? Right. So um, when I came to um, the injuries that I had, I had broken my jaw, and so my jaw was wired shut. I had fractured three ribs and had a collapsed lung, and so at that point I was breathing through a trach. Um, the leg was missing, and then I had a deep laceration through my left shoulder. And we didn't know quite, you know, everything that had happened with that. Um, later, they would further investigate the, the cut in my left shoulder and come to find that it had cut, severed some of the nerves that supply a motor to your arm. And so my left arm was affected both by the stroke and by the nerves that had been cut by the glass from the vehicle. Good grief. So I'm just trying to rewind for a second and just not rush past that. Because I can't comprehend it. You're as physically fit as they get, at least here in Paragold, you know, as far as I know. Um, <laughs> way beyond what I could ever imagine for myself. Um, but you have the wreck, and then bam, next thing you know, you wake up, your leg's gone, left side of your body's not working right, and your you lung has collapsed, and your mouth is wired shut. So you can't talk, right? Correct. Like, what feelings were inside of you in that moment? Was it just absolute? Was it fear? Was it anger? Was it deep sorrow, all of the above? I don't think it had really resonated within me, everything that had taken place just yet. You know, I knew I was injured, but I'd been injured before. And so at that moment, it seemed like any other injury. It seemed like, okay, you know, you heal, you get better, and you move on. I didn't realize, you know, the lasting ramifications that some of these injuries were going to have just yet. And, you know, like you said, I was young, I was fit, I was healthy, mm -hmm. and I was a physical therapist. I'm like, you know, I understand what some of these things mean for your average individual, but that's not me. And so I don't anticipate I'm going to have those struggles. And so it really hadn't resonated with me just yet how dramatically my life was about to be changed. And when you woke up, you weren't out of the woods yet, right? I mean, did you still, or at that point when you woke up and you were finally like out of the kind of medically induced coma, like where you're like, okay, like, yeah, you're, you're good. It's no touch and go from this point. Or was it still like, no man, like you're still in really bad condition. Yeah, it was a, uh, it was a long time before, you know, I didn't have to be uh, medically observed, so to speak. Uh, and what I mean by that is. You know, uh, when they initially would bring me out, they would kind of they bring you out of the chemical induced coma, and then they put you back down. They kind of they don't want to leave you mm -hmm. on it. They want to you know make sure that you're still responsive, and not put you in too deep of a sleep. And so um, you know, there was a point there where you know my body was under this extreme amount of stress, and so you know my heart rate was like 170 or something like that, for like the first couple of days that I was in the hospital. And it was it was interesting because later the doctor said, you know, if he was not as healthy as he is, as fit as he is, he wouldn't be alive still because his body just wouldn't be able to take this kind of stress. Yeah, because your natural resting heart rate for you is what? 
is 46. And so, and then back then, you know, it may have been a little better. And so, um, and now it's up to 170. Your body's just like, yeah. what in the world? And so, you know, it's, it's, it's working as hard as it could. Um, but my body was used to that stress from all the physical training that I had um, kind of put myself, uh, made, made, made myself endure. And so it was able to, to, to push through. Um, but I didn't, you know, mentally speaking, the doctors were kind of worried about what was going to take place. You know, they talked to my family about the stroke and they were convinced that, you know, when I came back, I wouldn't be myself anymore. Yeah. That cognitively I would be completely changed, you know, from an because, emotional yeah. perspective and, and, you know, just from, you know, my ability to, to, um, you know, think deeply. And, um, for me, I wasn't aware of this at the time, and within my mind, I knew that I was hurt, and the chemicals that they, they you know, that I was exposed to would make you dream. And so I had a hard time telling the difference between reality and the images that I was seeing in my dream. What kind in, of dreams? What do you mean? Well, I would have just various dreams, you know, and all of them I knew that I was hurt, like I was in some kind of facility um, recovering from an injury. I couldn't tell what the injuries were. But like I would be in different places. I would be in like um, at one time I was at like Florida and I was in a rehabilitation home there. And I didn't know why I was there, but, you know, I was hurt and I was in a wheelchair and I couldn't couldn't get up. I couldn't move around. That was all I knew. Um, and then it was you'd go back and forth between reality because I could remember it raining a lot at the time. And this was about the time Pocahontas flooded. And, um, you know, I was worried. Uh, I remember being worried about the girl that I was dating and her driving back to Northeast Arkansas from Memphis because, you know, the rain and the storms and everything. But then I also remember being, thinking that the hospital was out of beds. And so I was put in like a rollaway trailer room that was basically like an add-on hospital room. And, you know, I remember waking up when I was finally awake and could remember these things and asking my mom about various things that I could remember. And she's like, you know, you've been in this room the whole time. I don't know what you're talking about. Wow. And I don't, you know, I can only imagine how that would affect them just after everything they had heard about what to expect from a cognitive perspective in the first place. Um, But I never, you know, it it took me a a little while to, uh, I guess, reacquaint myself with reality. And then, so when was that? Like, how, when did that, when did reality settle in? How far in to your stay at the hospital? So, you said you were away. They woke you up three weeks. That's when you kind of came out three weeks. How much further after that? You're like, okay, like, this is what's going on here. Well, that's kind of a complicated uh, question in itself because, you know, it was um, about a week after that or so, once, you know, my, my mind had kind of stabilized and I was off some of the chemicals that they had put me on. I began to become more self-aware, and so I knew what was going on around me, and I began to, to think about, you know, hey, how's this going to affect me in the long term? I can't move my left arm. Am I going to be able to work as a physical therapist? I'm missing my leg. You know, that I wasn't too worried about at the time. Hmm. Um, Why do you think that is? I just, I, I, like I said, I was educated, and I understood the process. Plus, it's definitive. The leg was gone. Like, it happened. It was gone. You get a prosthesis, you learn to use it, and you move on. I understood I could deal with the effects. The effects, of, it was not knowing, not knowing how much function am I going to get back in my arm. Um, am I going to be able to work as a physical therapist? Am I going to be able to you know, support my family one day? Those what-ifs were what were really driving me insane, and I kind of began to bat those around. But I adopted this um, mindset of control what you can control. You know, at that point, I was healing, and what I could do, I was going to do it to the best of my ability, whatever I could to help my body heal. So, you know, I I kind of focused on my diet and things of that nature. Um, Even while in the hospital? Even while in the hospital. uh, How did you focus on your diet while then you're in the hospital? Well, I actually had some heart-to-hearts with, you know, nutrition. (laughs) They were, you know, I was on a liquid diet because my jaw was wired shut. And, um, you know, they'd put me on, I can't remember how many calories, but I was coming off training and had been on a 4,000 calorie diet. And so I had to have a heart to heart and be like, guys, I eat this much every day. Like my metabolism is through the roof. I am starving. And, and, you know, try to get some more sustenance so that, you know, I'd be able to heal optimally. But then I also began to think about school. And like I said, I was just finishing school, 
when you graduate with your doctorate in physical therapy, before you can practice, you have to take a board exam. And so I was like, okay, don't worry about are you going to be able to practice as a physical therapist just yet, but because before you can practice, you've got to pass this board exam. So from the stroke, I was kind of disoriented. I couldn't concentrate for long periods of time. Mm. But my board exam was in July. This wreck is in April. By the time I've woken up, it's May. And, um, and so it's May, and I'm like, okay, in July, I've got this test that I've been preparing for for the last three years of my life. Well, eight, uh, seven years if you count undergrad. And so in the hospital, I'm trying to begin preparing myself for that exam and then also work on myself from a physical standpoint in healing and uh, uh, regaining as much function as I can, you know, working on the paralysis in my left arm, working on, you know, learning how to get around uh, only using the one leg and the wheelchair. And so it was a, it was a very complex time. Um, but you said, when did you, you know, when did you realize, when did you, you know, become more self-aware of what was going on? It really wasn't until I was discharged from rehab. Mm-hmm. I went from the hospital to uh, Atlanta, Georgia at the Shepherd Center there. They specialize in brain and spinal cord injuries. When and was that? How long, were, when were you discharged from Memphis and moved to Atlanta? Altogether, it was three months between the hospital and rehab. I believe... It was about a month and a half and a month and a half. So I believe okay. I was in the hospital for a month and a half. And then I discharged. I went to rehab in Atlanta. And I spent another month and a half there. How much did you weigh going into the hospital and then coming out? Um, I had just made weight for my competition. So I was 165 pounds going into the hospital. I'd had to drop weight from 175 to get there. And then coming out of the hospital, I was 124 pounds. And so and that uh, short amount of time. Right, and so I had lost a dramatic. No wonder you're like, "Hey guys, I'm gonna need some. <laughs> I'm gonna need some more food." Yeah, I mean, it's liquid already. You you always feel hungry because, I mean, if you're starving and you get a protein shake or you get some chicken broth or something, you know that doesn't really do it for you. Um, and so once I left rehab, that was when I really started to realize how significantly life had been affected. You know, um, when you're in the hospital. You know, a lot of people are worried about how you're going to react when you wake up. But you wake up, the doctors are there, the nurses are there, your family's there, your friends are there. You know, you have a very good support system in place, ideally speaking. You know, I had good friends, I had good family. Everybody was there and everybody was helping me with anything that I needed. And so, you know, you don't really see the changes that have occurred. Um, You know, going through the Shepherd Center, going through rehab there, I was able to regain some function in my left arm, but it would never, it was never functioning properly and it wasn't recovering the way you would expect it. I got movement in my fingers first and then my wrist and then my elbow. And then I still didn't have anything in my shoulder. You would usually expect movement in the shoulder and then the elbow and then the wrist and the fingers moving in the opposite direction. And that's when they became aware something was wrong. And that's when they started running further tests and they discovered that I had what's called a brachial plexus injury, which is the brachial plexus is all the nerves that come out of your neck and run into your arm. And uh, they couldn't tell me you know, specifically how it was damaged or what was damaged, but they knew that some of those nerves had been damaged. And, and that was part of what my struggle was from the paralysis and the weakness. And so um, that kind of introduced a little bit more of the unknowns of, you know, what if. Or, or how, what's this going to look like? Um, was that the hardest point for you in all of this whenever you found that out? Because it seems like you'd kind of made somewhat of a piece. Of, okay, I'm going to get this you know, prosthetic limb and I'll figure that out. But man, I got to be able to have my arms. It wasn't, it was, it was definitely a struggle. Um, like you said, I said, okay, if I, you know, the leg, I'll get a prosthesis. I, I can work with that. That's okay. The arm, I was like, well, you know, I need my arm to be able to do the, the job duties mm-hmm. that I will have as a physical therapist. It's like, I, I can't do it without my arm and without my leg. And, um, and even when I found out that the nerves had been injured and we had the stroke and the uh, injury to the nerves going against me, it wasn't too terribly dark at that moment because I knew those nerves could recover. Okay. Um, they recover slowly and recovery doesn't always look the best, but again, I was still kind of putting myself in a, 
a different category than everyone else. And I had, I don't know, I guess I had a, uh, a spiritual peace of mind. You know, I remember when I woke up, I told my, you know, I told my uh, girlfriend at the time and I told my family, I was like, you know, I was like, I'm going to be just fine. You know, I, I talked to God and, you know, he told me that, you know, yeah, you know, this is going to be rough and it's going to be a process, but that I'm going to be just fine. Mm-hmm. And so I had a, a, um, I guess a spiritual comforting mm-hmm. and uh, faith that, you know, I would, I would get through it. Mm-hmm. And, and in my mind, that meant that I was going to heal, that I was going to have, you know, some unparalleled, basically full recovery or something of that nature. Um, but getting out of the hospital and going home, um, I had a, a good friend of mine who had a, uh, a wedding July 4th weekend. And that was when I was, the weekend before that was when I was released from the hospital. And uh, his wedding was in California. And he was the one that, that I was actually supposed to go and do a couple Spartan races with before I got injured and ended up in the hospital. And as soon as he heard on Facebook, you know, that something was wrong, that there was a potential that I was injured, he hopped on a plane and he flew from Ohio, uh, you know, over to Memphis and, and came and saw me and, you know, stayed there for some time and then flew back to see me a couple times. Uh, but I was supposed to be in this friend's wedding. And before I ever got injured, before I ever even had my accident, I told him, if I said, if I am physically breathing, I will be at your wedding. And, um, and so, you know, he was just messing with me when I saw him at the hospital, but he was like, hey, you know, my wedding's in July. He's like, you're still breathing. Um, but I knew that I wanted to get to that wedding, that that was somewhere that I wanted to be. You know, I was supposed to be the best man, and, and he had really showed me a lot of, a lot of care and a lot of, a, a lot of love in everything that he had done for me, and I wanted to be there. So as soon as I get out of the hospital, I jump on an airplane. I had already booked my tickets and everything before the accident jump on an airplane, and I fly out to California. And it was in this trip that I realized how difficult everything was going to be, um, you know, to get on and off the plane, uh, trying to use a wheelchair. And then uh, I wasn't able to walk with a walker like you would think hopping because, you know, the damage to my left arm. And so I would have to use a cane in my right hand and hop on my right leg if I ever was in an area that was too narrow to navigate with my, uh, with my wheelchair. And so getting onto the plane, you know, getting there, navigating the airport, once we got there, and it was just me and the girl that I was dating at the time, so I didn't have a lot of help, um, meaning like a lot of bodies. And so, you know, I wasn't able to carry my luggage, I wasn't able to do those things, and that was hard for me as a person, and I'd always been the strong guy, you know, I'd always been an athlete, and now here I am adjusting to, you know, everyone's having to get doors for me and I can't carry my own luggage. This is like on the real world. Just right. It's like, okay, line. you know, hey, you know, what happened here? You know, these these roles these that you fulfill, that you play every day. Did you feel like people looked at you differently? Oh, absolutely. You know, from the moment that I woke up, you know, I obviously drew more attention if I was ever out in the public. Um, but I felt, I began to feel as I'd become more of a, uh, a liability or a, um, a weight upon people where I used to feel that I added something positive. Mm-hmm. I felt that I became more of a drag because what could, mm-hmm. you know, I add to the situation. Yeah. You know, um, here, the girl that I was with was having to carry my luggage and, you know, I could see her sweating and struggling and everything and trying to keep up with me and keep up with that. And then, um, you know, it only got worse as the trip went on. We got to California and, um, I'm trying to figure out, you know, how I'm going to get around in this home that's not, you know, uh, wheelchair accessible, you know, to be able to get into the shower and take a shower or to be, you know, getting in and out of the car or, you know, the things they want to do. They want to go for walks on the sidewalk down the beach or they want to go to the arcade and play on video games. And uh, and it was just kind of a, a realization moment or something easy. They wanted to play Mario cars and you have to use a controller for that and you usually use both thumbs. And I can't hold the controller. So, you know, I'm trying to plant the controller somewhere and and use one hand. And I remember watching the car just spin around and around and around like you would think uh, if you hit a banana or something. And so it was really a, a, whoa, you know, everything is is really, really hard. And so that was when, you know, things started to get rough. And then beyond, you know, me having that realization physically how much life had been changed, um, the the girl that I was with at the time, we started having just some uh, 
some issues at that time where you could kind of see a foreshadowment for there to be problems later. Um, and, you know, and I think that transpired from a lot of things. I think, you know, the, the stress of it all, I think, um, you know, the dramatic change, you know, it wasn't only a change for me, but for that individual, I think it was just a lot at once. And, uh, but between, you know, not knowing what my future was going to look like from a physical standpoint, was I going to be able to care for myself? Was I going to be able to work? You know, even taking a shower is difficult now. And then, you know, beginning to see a change in my personal relationships. You know, uh, me and my buddies, we couldn't go do the things that we normally like to do. Uh, you know, again, and your relationships were all built around fitness, right? Right. So, you know, a lot of people, they'll go and they'll have lunch and they'll sit and they'll talk. And I'd always been wired a little differently. Me and my friends, when we were going to hang out, we would, we would go to CrossFit or we would go mountain biking or we would go lift at the gym together or, you know, like me and the girls, we'd go to the park and we'd walk the dogs or we'd walk the dogs around the neighborhood. You know, everything was very, very active, very active, very physically linked, so to speak. So, you know, it wasn't like I lost only, you know, the body parts or only the potential of, you know, the career, everything had changed. Every one of my personal relationships had to be incredibly lonely. It was, you know, lonely in the perspective that people were willing to be there. Not as much, but lonely as in, you know, um, hard to feel like anyone could understand. Yeah. Or how do you even express it? Because, you know, you already feel like a weight. And the last thing you want to do is let people know when you're upset because then you become even more of a weight. And so it was, uh, it was. And then in my, you know, in my, in my um, spiritual relationship, you know, I'd always felt very close to God. And um, it was odd that at this point he seemed silent. Yeah. And so, um, you know, I had prayed many times in the hospital and felt like we were speaking back and forth. And as things got harder it got harder for me to have those conversations and I would feel as though my words were sounding on on uh, ceilings or walls like they just weren't getting through. And so... Um, Dude, I can't imagine. I mean, it, it, much... Something being much worse than that as far as, you know, the physical pain's bad, but when you start feeling not just isolated relationally, like I said, yeah, people were there, but like couldn't possibly really walk in your shoes and understand what you were going through. So there's the isolation there, but also whenever you feel like, man, like heaven's been like the doors have been shut up there to where like my prayers are just hitting the ceiling. I mean, was there just moments of just deep depression? Definitely. And and that's what I tell people. You know, I said my hardest moment began when I left the hospital and it just continued on from there. You know, as, as things went on, relationships got harder uh, you know, um, I don't know, I guess I began to realize more and more of the things that I had lost. Uh, eventually, the girl that I was with, her and I went our separate ways, and so that kind of compounded on top of it. Um, and then again, just not feeling like I was able to talk to God, like He wasn't hearing me. Yeah. Uh, you know, I had a picture in my mind for how this recovery process was going to go, a time frame and an expectation. And when it didn't go that way, it began to feel very hopeless. Um, yeah. You may not want to answer this, you know, but I'm just curious, like you're laying in bed at night, because that's usually when I do my most of my thinking, you know, like what's, what's the dialogue you're having inside of your head at that point? It's like, you know, the girl you're with gone, the fitness, the, the, the relational element with fitness is gone. Your own health is, seems to be, you know, nowhere where you want it to be. What What are some of the dialogues you had at that moment? You're laying in bed at night with yourself. So, um, you know, I can distinctly remember, and um, and it's. I think it's okay to talk about hindsight. Mm-hmm. Um, but I remember thinking, you know, I I knew my faith. I knew where my heart uh, stood, and so you know, if I had passed away that day then I would go on, and, and, and that would have been it. That would have been the end of it. And by, you know, sparing my life, by saving me, I really felt that I had been done wrong. I felt like, you know, I had been spared to be a, uh, to be a burden on everyone, mm-hmm. that, you know, um, that I should have been able to allow to pass on. 
And that, um, and then at this point, I didn't understand because you know I, I could have died at any moment, and and God spared me. And I remember telling people, you know, He brought me here to leave me here. Mm. Like He's brought me to this place, and and now He's gone away. Mm. And so you know, I remember frequently having that dialogue that you know, if if they just would have left me alone, then you know that would have been better than the alternative, yeah. uh, where you're in this, you know. Um, unknown uh, dark place where you don't have any idea if everything anything's ever going to improve or if it's just going to keep spiraling into this kind of black abyss so to speak yeah and that's true right i mean for someone like you who puts your faith in christ i mean death is gain right this is what the scripture says and so like yeah you're in this very real moment where you're like yep (laughs) definitely would have been better for me to die so at that point what do you do? Where do you go? Where do you turn? How long does that last? So you know that it was it was hard experience. You know, I I say that I I talk to a lot of people who are struggling, and I say you know I don't think it's wrong to go to that dark place, and I think you almost have to to mm-hmm. hit rock bottom. Yeah. I said, but when you hit rock bottom, the only place to go is up. I said, it's when you hit rock bottom and you stay there. I said, those are the, the sad stories we hear. When you hit rock bottom and you begin to you know, improve from there, those are going to be the success stories. And so for me, um, I began to, to really look at other individuals who had been through you know, struggles in their life. And so you know, I began to look at some of these... Uh, injured veterans who had had amputations and injuries and the like and see how they're living their life. And the first one that drew my attention was Derek Weida. You know, he's a, uh, a CrossFit athlete and he's an above-the-knee amputee. Hmm. And I remember watching him uh, doing box jumps, you know, with just the one leg or single-leg lunges with his prosthesis on and all these things. And, um, and it really made me begin to challenge myself. You know, I, I said, okay... Sitting here is doing absolutely nothing for me. If I try, there may be no gain. I don't know how much function I'll get back in my arm. I don't know what's going to happen there. But whatever takes place has to be more, has to be better than what I have here sitting and doing nothing. Mm. You know, I listened to a, I was back to listen to some of my motivational videos that I used to watch when I exercised. And I remember listening to a man that had no arms and no legs. And he said, you know, if I fall over, it should be physically impossible for me to get up. He said, but as long as I always try, then I always have that chance. There's always that possibility. He said, but when I stop trying, I will go no further. There is no chance. Um, And so it really made me kind of look at the situation differently. You know, was I doing everything that I could? You know, I'd become... uh, very stagnant. I had, you know, kind of secluded myself, withdrawn from my personal relationships, you know, wasn't even trying to use the parts of my body that were unaffected. And at this point, I had moved into early prosthetic training. And early on, prosthetic training is a nightmare. Uh, In what way? If, if, and and I don't want to say this the wrong way, but the higher you lose your leg, the harder it is to get around on. And the vast majority of amputations are below the knee amputations. Mm. And they are, and, I, and I'm not trying to be insensitive or anything of that nature, but they're not as hard to learn to use as an above the knee prosthesis. But what I'm saying is it's harder for people to, you know, there's not that awareness. You know, you see an amputee running around and you're like, well, you know, hey, he runs around, what's your struggle? Mm-hmm. And, and they don't take into account the level or things of that nature. And I didn't, you know, I was a physical therapist and I sure. hadn't thought about the level or the difference between above and below the knee. And uh, when you first have an amputation, your limb is rapidly changing. You're lo- it's changing shape, you're losing volume, and that makes it difficult to get a good fit uh, with the socket, which is the part that goes against your limb. And so it's, you know, you're adjusting to the heat of it, you know, you put a silicone liner on and you're sweating into that. Mm-hmm. And then you have a poor fit. So between the sweat and the poor fit, it's moving all around while you're trying to walk on it. You're trying to learn how to balance on it. And when you go above the knee, you're losing a lot of your, you lose a lot of the musculature that allows you to shift your weight appropriately. So balancing is a nightmare. 
And so I'm looking at the prosthesis and I'm looking at how much harder it was to use than I expected it to be. And I'm looking at, you know, my left arm and um, the unknownness there, you know, uh, at the, that, that point, you know, I couldn't do much with it because there was a chance that I would injure myself. And so I remember going uh, back to the doctor and he took a look, another look at my shoulder and he said, okay, you know, everything that did not have a nerve supply has some kind of supply now. He said, it's not normal. It's not, you know, what it was, but there's something there. And he said, your supraspinatus, which is the muscle that holds your shoulder in the joint so that it doesn't fall out. He said, that muscle looks so good, I can't even tell that you ever injured it. And what that did for me mentally was it said, okay, you can begin to take off the, uh, the uh, training wheels here. Mm-hmm. You can try harder because you're not going to hurt yourself. Because the mm-hmm. last thing I wanted to do was injure myself and set myself back. And so, you know, uh, and this all goes together, looking, talking about the, those vets that I was looking at. You know, so at this point, I'm looking at the prosthesis. I understand it's difficult. I'm looking at my arm. I understand that it's unknown how much I can get back. But I had prided myself my entire life in doing things that were difficult better than other people. And I could very well see all these, you know, these veterans who were successful on their prostheses. And, you know, um, and I saw another veteran. His name's Noah Galloway. And he is an above-the-knee amputation for his leg and above the elbow on his arm. And he's on the front of Men's Health magazine. He's been on Dancing with the Stars. And he's in a... Uh, a advocate for uh, uh, Tough Mudder. He's one of the people that they, you know, they basically pay to do the races. And I remember just seeing, you know, he was ripped to the teeth, just in tremendous health. I'd said, how am I going to exercise? I can use half of my body. You know, I'd said, I guess I'm just going to be fat and lazy because, you know, I can't work out hard enough to even, you know, do anything. And here he was with the same amputation as me, with less of an arm than me, and it didn't stop him. You know, he was in ridiculously good shape. And so, yeah, and so um, I began to say, okay, you know, the the prosthesis thing, it's just practice. If they can make it work, there's a way, there's a pathway to make it work. So you need to buckle down and get with it and and figure out how to make this work for you. With the arm, I was like, okay, I don't know what it will look like, but I do understand therapy. I understand it's repetition. I understand, you know, first you do it and then you try to refine it, do it better. And so I understand that. And so, you know, um, I really began to take charge of my own rehab. And, you know, now I'm going to walk regularly. You know, every day I'm making myself go to like Walcott Park or something of that nature and walk. Uh, And it looks terrible at this time, but we're going to do it. And, you know, my arm, I began to find what I could do with it and trying to do that frequently. I remember stacking solo cups at the kitchen table for hours and hours. You'd get so frustrated. You know, I can only lift my arm initially to the first movement I had in my arm, I remember laying on my back and I could lift my arm where it was straight up in front of me. And I would try to hold it there and see how long I could keep it from falling. And it would, you know, I'd go too far one way or the other and it would fall down. And uh, that was the first movement I got. Once I got a little bit more, I started trying to stack solo cups. And first, all I could do was move them from right in front of me to a few inches in front of me. And then I'm beginning to, you know, as I'm getting stronger, I'm trying, I'm doing this, you know, two, three, four times a day, just as high as you can stack it three times, come back an hour later, do it again. And just over and over and over. Like I said, it's repetition. And uh, I got to a point where I could do a few levels, but I'm shaky. My movements are uncontrolled. And I can remember, you know, getting to like the third row and then you knock them all down. They're solo cups. And then I was just, I'd get so angry. I, you know, I just want to throw them across the room. But I understood that there was a rationale to what I was doing, that there was a reason behind it. And so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm still kind of in that dark place. I'm still, you know, not where I want to be. The arm is, you know, it's getting better, but it's extremely slow. The prosthesis, I'm starting to figure it out, but I'm also figuring out some stuff is never going to be the same. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm never going to be able to squat the way I once was. I'm never going to be able to do a, a uh, you know, to lunge on that side. Anything, I'm not going to be able to go downstairs normally to an extent. Uh, I can, you can, you can ride the hydraulics, but it's not ideal, I guess you'd say. It's not, it doesn't feel normal. Um, 
And so it was still kind of a dark place, but we're starting to move in that right direction. Um, and I kept doing those things. I kept, you know, doing what I could do. And I went back to that philosophy of trying to, you know, control the things that I could control and not worrying about what I couldn't worry, what I couldn't control. And it wasn't long into my prosthetic care that, you know, uh, I went in and my prosthetist, the guy who makes my leg, was the owner of the company. And something I'd been worried about from the moment I got hurt was how am I going to take care of myself? Mm-hmm. You know, how, how am I going to, you know, what's jo- my job going to look like? How am I going to support, you know, potentially my future family? And the guy who made my leg was the owner of the company. His name is Rob Yates. And uh, he offered me a job that day. Or not, not immediately, but it was still pretty early. You know, it was before I obtained my prosthesis. And... Um, he offered me a job as a clinical sports specialist, and I wasn't sure what that would entail at that point, but it wasn't really what I wanted to do. I'd always wanted to work in orthopedics, so I had told him, you know, at the moment that, you know, it wasn't something that I was interested in, that maybe we could talk about it later, but I'd had so many changes in my life, I wanted to pursue what I had been after all this time in PT school. Sure. And so um, going through this rehabilitation process, it is incredibly hard to get good information. There's just not enough physical therapists in the area who specialize in prosthetics. And so, you know, I'm asking my uh, physical therapist question. They're sending me back to my prosthetist. I'm asking my prosthetist. He says, that's a physical therapist question. Bouncing back and forth. So during this process, I'm beginning to see how hard this is for somebody who has a desire to get better. And so, you know... um, I come back and I have a conversation with Rob and I said, you know, I became a physical therapist to help people uh, and I can see a need here. I said, I can see that there is not a good source for prosthetic rehabilitation information in this area. I said, and um, I feel like, you know, coming to work here and fulfilling this position that you're telling me about, that I could fulfill a need that many can't. I said, if I go and I work in orthopedics, well, just about any physical therapist can do that. I said, but being someone who has an amputation, who's gone through the rehab, who walks with one of these daily, and who isn't, you know, who would be considered an expert on, you know, prosthetic rehabilitation and amputations, I said, that, that's different, and that resonates with people, and not everybody can fulfill that position in the same way. I said, and I got into this to help people, and so when I get to where I can, you know, stand to be on my leg for the enough time, then I want to go ahead and come to work. And so it was April 18th, 2017 was the accident. September 28th, 2017, I got my prosthesis. I went to work October the 20th of 2018. And at that point, the left arm was getting better, but it definitely still wasn't normal. And, um, and I was walking. I could be on my leg all day, but it still didn't look the way I wanted it to. I knew what normal gait should look like. And were and you back at the gym at that point? I was at the gym, but not nothing like once. You know, I went a couple times a week, did a little bit here and there, but it wasn't, I wasn't really pushing myself. I was, you know, just kind of doing some things that I could. Um, and so I what go. What was that like, by the way? First time you went back to the gym? That, you know, that was. Like I said, I'd been viewed for so long as being this strong individual. Uh, and, you know, here I was, in my mind, broken and decrepit and, you know, just completely, you know, everyone looking at me as a liability. Am I going to fall over? Am I going to, you know, fall off a machine? What's going to happen? Um, and I feel like I'm limping around. And so, you know, I, I didn't feel like me. I didn't feel like myself. It didn't feel like the gym. Not the gym that I remembered. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I, And it wasn't, right? It, it was different. It, it was different. Um, and that was the thing about prosthetics. So many things I couldn't wait to get back to. And then as I got back to them, I found they were different. Mm. They were no longer the same. Mm. And so you had to evaluate how you felt about that. You know, the gym was different. Um, when I eventually got back on a bike, back to mountain biking, you know, that was different. I fell so many times doing that, I began to ask myself if it was even worth it. And I loved mountain biking before I got injured. And um, uh, through my time at JPNO, I was able to be introduced to a lot of people who specialize in prosthetic care. 
and I was able. I had a lot of opportunities there um, to have good conversations with these people. And so now my prosthetic rehabilitation is looking a little better. I go to San Antonio, and I work with a therapist there. I go to Tampa, and I work with another therapist there. And these are kind of dual-gain opportunities, as in I'm getting prosthetic rehabilitation, and I'm also learning for them so that I can totally. bring this information yeah, yeah. back and share it uh, you know, to my colleagues here in this area. And, um, and so, you know, I... I it was like when things started to get better, they continually got better. And they, it wasn't fast. It definitely wasn't in the time frame that I had mm-hmm. foresaw. And, you know, I remember having those conversations with God once, you know, I, I wasn't so bitter that I felt that I could approach him again. Because mm-hmm. for a period of time I did. I had to go stop going to church. I had to stop trying to talk to God because I was so angry. Mm-hmm. And I felt like his silence was only compounding my anger. Yeah. And so, you know having those conversations later, I had remembered the day of the powerlift competition. I took a knee and I said, God, you know, I love to work out. I love this. And I understand the vanity that can be attached to it and the potential for sin there. I said, but you put this in my heart. You put this there and you gave me this love. And so what I would like is for you to find a way to use this to bring you glory. And, uh, and when I had, you know, come to and realized the struggle that I was on, I said, you know, I, I understand that there could be a, a great success story here if I can conquer this. I was like, but I don't want this. <laughs> I was thinking, you know, I don't want what I asked for anymore. Mm-hmm. I said, I don't want this struggle. I want my life back. Mm-hmm. You know, I had gotten exactly what I asked for. You know, my perspective had changed. Working out was no longer about, you know... Um, just getting stronger or you know improving my physical physique and I had mentioned function before but now it wasn't it was still about optimizing function but I had never looked at it as being uh, a necessity for daily life you know to be able to carry out normal tasks I had looked at it as being beyond that and so it was different but now I'm beginning to find the similarity and as I got stronger as I got, you know, more skilled on my prosthesis, as I got more use out of my left arm, then my mindset began to change. I began to kind of think of myself more as myself mm. and worry less about the, um, the doubts that others would have. And, uh, and, you know, um, not to fast forward too quickly, but, you know, we, we, we look at present day and I remember talking to a, a someone that I was working with and they're like, Anthony, what are you going to do this weekend? I was like, well, I'm going to go to Little Rock. Me and my buddy, we're going to hike Pinnacle Mountain, and then we're probably going to go down to um, Hot Springs, and we're going to do some mountain biking, and then we may, uh, so we may spend some time at the CrossFit gym. And they looked at me, they go, so what don't you do that you used to do before you got injured? And I stopped, and I thought, and it was really hard. Mm. And I said, um, I said, you know, I don't, I don't guess anything. I remember being to my buddy Garrett's wedding, and this was kind of still struggling. And um, I said, I don't like wearing pants. I said, they're just a pain in the butt to put on. And he's like, why? How you put them on? He goes, one leg at a time? He's like, yeah, me too. <laughs> and so, you know, my friends never took it easy. I mean, they never, you know, uh, slowed down for me. Um, but I found myself again, you know, that's as I post videos regularly to try to not only remind myself, but to try to encourage others on anniversaries and things of that nature. And that was what I said in one of my videos. I said, you know, just begin when I began to lose all hope, when things got so dark, I slowly began to find myself again. And as I found myself, I don't know, things just started falling into place more. You know, um, I was working in a position that, you know, I felt had been engineered for me, strategically engineered. Um, I had opportunities to begin teaching at um, Arkansas State at the DPT department, doing speakings for them and then teaching as an adjunct and then moving into uh, a a regular adjunct role where I do that now. And, uh, you know, I have aspirations of teaching full time one day and things of that nature. And then, you know, the my physical function, you know, I run, I mountain bike, I, I hike, you know, I do everything for the most part in some way that I once did even though I do it differently. And then eventually, as all those pieces began to come together, you know, I didn't look at myself as a liability anymore or a weight. I began to think I had something that I could add to people's lives again. 
And so, you know, I returned to dating and, uh, you know, I got, I got engaged and, you know, I'm engaged to be married in May and uh, there's just so much. Thank you. I appreciate that. There's just so much that would be different. You know, people always say, I wouldn't change it if I could, or would you change it if you could or something of that nature? And that is a complex question. There is not a day that I don't look back and say, I would love to have my leg or I would love to have full normal function in my left arm again. You'll never hear me say that. I don't desire those things. But to take away the accident, you take away the career profession that I've worked in, the, you know, the potential for, you know, where I want it to go, what I want it to lead to, you know, as being an educator, where I had never thought about that before. You take away the relationship, you know, with the girl that I'm with now and, you know, the potential and and the uh, future marriage and things of that nature. And so how different would your life look? And me as a person, you know, I remember a nurse telling me, you'll never be the same Anthony again. You will be a stronger, Mm. different version of yourself. Mm. And I remember thinking she was crazy because here I was broken and decrepit. How would I ever be stronger? But I'm thinking physically. Yeah, you're like, have you, you know, seen physical, my bench press? Right. Yeah. And, um, and then I understood what she meant, you know, growth as a person, yeah. time to sit and reflect and think deeply about these things. Um, you know, the situation. You think that's true? I, no. Absolutely. I remember, you know, I had a, a conversation with my buddy Matt Shelton. And, uh, you know, we were just talking about some of the bad. And I said, you know, these things are bad. I said, but... I said, I am so blessed to be where I am. I said, you know, I have a career where I can support myself because I was already educated. I said, I, um, you know, I'm uh, in a nation where I have good health, access to good health care. You know, I talk to people from Southeast Asia and China and other countries who can't afford prosthetics because, you know, the government, there is no uh, health insurance there and they're too expensive. And so, you know, I... To be in a, a, a rough spot, it was, in many ways, it was as though God had prepared me for what was to come. You know, and always challenging myself physically, I was able to survive the accident. And always challenging myself mentally, I was able to endure um, the uh, loneliness and depression that I encountered. Um, and uh, just the people that he put in my life, you know, um, one of my best friends, Garrett Hart, you know, he was there every day to get to drag me out of bed and be like, "Hey, mm. you're not you're not gonna sleep all day. We get up, we're going somewhere." Mm. And you know, they just they didn't give up on me. And then even my relationship, you know, um, to the girl that I'm with now, I met her. Uh, we had gone to high school together, but we had never really talked. And I was going to go run that day at Green County Tech at the old campus. And I decided to go at a different time. I was like, well, let me, you know, I, I always try to do what I feel led to do, even in my daily tasks. Like if there's an order I set to it, I, I try to kind of feel that out and see what the Lord has for me. Mm-hmm. And that's become more important since, you know, my motorcycle accident when I ignored him, when he checked my spirit mm-hmm. and I saw what that led to. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, I ordered my day and I decided to run later and she was there walking her dogs. And, um, I couldn't tell, you know, I thought I knew who it was, but I wasn't sure. And I got on Facebook later, and I seen a picture of her and her dogs, and I just commented on it. I was like, oh, that was you. And, you know, that led to further conversations, what led to, you know, eventual meetings, and, and here we are now, you know, engaged. And so to say, would you change it if you could? I would love to have what I lost back. But I can't change the event of the accident without changing everything that's happened. So I don't feel like you can. Mm. You know, you would be giving up a lot. So I guess what I'm saying is if I have to live with the struggles in order to be the same man and to have the same things that I have that is worth uh, coping with these uh, difficulties. Yeah. So... It's powerful. We uh, <clears throat> have a theme that continually runs through our podcast. Um, and, you know, it's just what we see taught in the scriptures. For those who, you know, read the scriptures, you see it all through there, that hardship, suffering, it really can make you stronger. 
It can make you better. It can lead you in a deeper life. And so it's just so good to hear your story and to hear, I really appreciate your honesty. I really appreciate it. I'm just like, hey, man, it wasn't easy. It's hard. There's still hard parts of it. But yeah, like, man, I love the life that I have now and the life that I have, though there are some things that I would change. Like everybody that's listening to this, right? There's some really beautiful parts of it, too. It seems that you're very grateful for. And um, it's crazy how through an accident, we call it an accident, right? You see so many of the things unfold that it's just like, okay, well, maybe there's a deeper plan and purpose in here than I could have ever created for myself. And so I'm curious if you, um, there are people that are listening to this right now that obviously are fighting their own battles, right? Um, Anything you would say to them before we end to the person who maybe even right now they're, you know, they're in bed and they're like, I can't get up, I can't go any further or whatever, you know. What encouragement would you leave for them? I think there's a few things you have to focus on. I think you can only focus on the things that you can control. The things that are beyond your control, you have to let those go and do to the best of your abilities what you can control. And believe it or not, everything else will fall into place. And then you have to put that effort forward because you will go nowhere if you if you don't put that effort into it. And you don't ever truly fail or lose uh, until you stop trying. When you stop trying, you say, I don't want to go any further. This is where I want to stay forever because you won't move until you put that effort. And no matter how far, how hard that first step is or how small that first step may look, it is going to lead you to a better place. You know, they say the journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. And it can be so hard to see that journey when you're standing at the starting line, uh, see that journey ending positively. Um, but that's what you have to do. If you do not take that first step, then you won't move forward and you stay in that dark place. And those are the sad stories that you hear. You know, I mentioned I don't think it's, it's wrong to have those thoughts or to go to that place. You can't stay there, though. You know, a... Um, a diamond is created under pressure, right? But it doesn't become something that we put a lot of value into, jewelry, until it is removed from that place. And so, you know, it, it's okay to go to that place, but don't stay there. You know, uh, spend the time you need to there, heal, learn, grow, adapt, and, and move on and survive. You know, I, I mentioned to you before you got here, but it's really that adaptation factor you know we as humans are very adaptable that's why we have survived as part of the reason we've survived as long as we have and um, and when you first look at changing your mindset looking at a situation differently you know um, it it resonates as weakness you're like well I'm giving up on what I had because I can't get there anymore and so I'm just saying that this is good enough and what you have to realize is that if you do not adapt, you will not survive. And it is easier not to try and say it is impossible than it is to say to try and potentially fail. Mm-hmm. You know, um, there's a, a motivational speaker that I love to listen to. His name's Greg Plitt. I encourage anyone listening to, li- to look him up. And he says, you know, the, the, the man that shows up and tries is 10 times more of a man than the guy that never showed up because he never went to the arena in the first place. You never had that chance. And so you have to, you know, you have to adapt. You have to try. You have to change your mindset to learn, to grow. And you will find purpose and meaning beyond what you once understood. (laughs) I can't think of a better way to end the podcast than that. Um, Thank you so much for coming on, Anthony. We'll love to have you again um, sometime uh, you're a big inspiration to me and I know to a lot of other people so thank you for being vulnerable thanks for being willing to come on and, and reliving that and yeah man inspiring others that are listening as well yeah thank you for having me and and you know I hope that this story whoever it reaches that you know it helps someone in some way that's uh, that's a large reason why I like to try and continue to do these things is just 
those people helped me. You know, Derek Weed and Noah Galloway, hearing their story, seeing their progress, seeing where they are now. And so that's what I would like to do in some sense or form or fashion. And even if it's just one person, you know, show them what they can do, give them some kind of hope so that they have the desire to begin trying. But thank you so much for having me, and uh, yeah. you know, I appreciate it. Right on, man. You're doing a great job. So that was Anthony Allen. Um, that is a podcast that I'm going to go back and listen to anytime that I think I'm going to make an excuse or I feel like making an excuse um, to not do something that I know I need to do. What a great story um, that certainly highlights a man who has persevered, who has continued to push forward and do what he knows is right and best um, and had all the excuses in the world obviously did not do those things. So Anthony, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for your example. If you are uh, still listening to this, I want you to know that um, we are on all social media platforms. So check us out on Facebook, uh, like our page. If you have not had a chance to do that, you can find us on Twitter, also on Instagram. And if you have not subscribed to our email list, uh, you can do that. You can also find us at paragouldpodcast.com. As always, thanks for listening and until next time.